Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers. We're going to read from chapter 34, though we're going to cover all 31 through 34. At least that's my intention. Numbers chapter 34, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance. The land of Canaan is defined by its borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom, and your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east. And your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim and cross to Zen, and its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and pass along to Asmon. And the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its limit shall be at the sea. For the western border you shall have the great sea and its coast. This shall be your western border. This shall be your northern border. From the great sea you shall draw a line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor you shall draw a line to Lebo Hamath. And the limit of the border shall be at Zedad. And the border shall extend to Ziphron, and its limit shall be at Hazar Enon. This shall be your northern border. You shall draw a line for your eastern border from Hazar Enon to Shepham. And the border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of In. And the border shall go down and reach to the shoulder of the Sea of Chinnereth on the east. And the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its limit shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around." Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe, for the tribe of the people of Reuben by father's houses and the tribe by the people of Gad by their father's houses have received their inheritance and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan east of Jericho toward the sunrise. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak, that we would hear. Lord, would you give life from your word to our hearts, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Pull back the curtain just briefly and let you know a little bit of how kind of pastoring works at and the Christ Ridge Church, we do our best, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in the order of worship to work out in advance. And uh, now our family that prints the bulletins know that's not always the case. Sometimes we're last minute, but we try to be advanced. But with the sermons, it's very different. And we have them planned out uh, roughly six to nine months in advance, if we can. Uh, and I love that for a number of different reasons. Uh, one, because it <laughs> makes my weekly schedule a bit less insane. But two is there's a a great sense of fun of knowing that when we gather together on a Sunday morning and we come to the text, 
And this is a text that was picked months ago when I had no idea what was going on. And when Brandon had no idea what was going on, you're weak this week, we have no idea. And so it's comforting to be able to stand up here and to say that when we come to Numbers chapters 31 through 34, this is what the Lord designed for you to hear. It was picked before the foundation of the world, ultimately, when God planned out the entirety of creation, but even more specifically and personally picked through me putting together my preaching schedule six months ago. So that we can come to a text like this and say that no matter where you are this week, whether you've had a good week or a bad week, whether it's been a happy one or a sad one, whether you're having fun in life or maybe not so much, Numbers 31 through 34 is important for us to consider. The starting point in Numbers chapter 31 is a, a, a principle that rings true throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, but one that we tend to not enjoy emotionally. <clears throat> Sin brings destruction. There's no really easy way around this. There's no kind of polite way to talk about it. There's no way to kind of go around it. Sin brings destruction. Chapter 31 begins as God's people are getting to ready to move into the promised land. It's the end of Moses' life. It's the end of his ministry. It's the beginning point of Joshua getting ready to take over and lead God's people as God takes them out of their journeys, out of their travels, out of their wanderings, out of the wilderness, and into the place that he will plant them. There's one man left that needs to be finished, that needs to be removed. It's Moses, and chapter 31 is kind of part of his farewell salute. If you look at it, 31 verse 1, the Lord speaks to Moses saying this is a direct command by God. Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Now, Midianites, a people group that are local, they're neighbors, they're regional neighbors right there next to Israel, a people group with whom they are well acquainted. It is a people group, however, that has been a problem for Israel. They've had issue with intermarriage. They've had issue with the people of Midian leading the hearts of Israel into great sin. They've had issue particularly with their women corrupting the men of Israel, their hearts being led astray. In fact, actually, if you were to turn back to chapter 25, this is one of the kind of great turning points in Israel's history. While they are in the process of intermarrying and Having problems with that, chapter 25, Israel's being judged by God. Verse 6, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they're weeping at the, tent of, at the entrance of the tent of Midian. This is, you remember, this is where all of Israel's grieving their sin because destruction has come upon them. And right while they're crying, this unbelievably kind of brazen Israelite man grabs this Midianite woman and takes her into his tent to marry her. And the high priest or... Uh, 
the son of the priest grabs a spear, you remember, goes running into the tent and runs them both through as an act of God's judgment. What's fulfilled here in chapter 31 is kind of the consequence of that for the entire nation. You have a nation that has been corrupting the people of God. This is a nation that has been leading Israel into adultery. Remember, at this time in Israel's history, adultery is punishable by death. And you have a nation that's been adulterous leading Israel into adultery and what is the national consequence. It's death. The Lord sends His army against Midian to destroy them. Verse 3, so Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. This is judgment for sin. Sin is destroying them. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So they provided that. Verse 7, they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. Verse 8, they killed the kings. Verse 9, the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones as they took, they took as plunder, uh, the cattle, the flocks, and all their goods. So, interestingly, this nation is effectively destroyed. The men are all, they're all killed. They're not murdered. Remember, this is judgment for sin. Sin destroys you. And instead, what they do is they keep the women and the children as part of the plunder, either to become wives or to become slaves or servants. It gets more difficult, actually, as the passage continues because Moses grows very angry, verse 14. Moses was angry with the officers of the army and the commanders of the thousands and hundreds who had come from service in the war. Right, remember, what, what have the Midianites done is they had corrupted Israel largely through their wives intermarrying with the Israelites. And Moses said, have you let all the women live? Have you let the women live? These were the ones that were the problem. These are the ones that led you astray. These are the ones that brought you into sin before the Lord. Verse 17, now therefore kill every male among the little ones, kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him, but all the young girls who have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. They execute an entire nation, leaving only the unmarried women. That's it. An entire country is gone. And by the Lord's blessing, they're so successful that they don't actually lose a single soldier. It's one of the great military campaigns in history. They, they, they wipe a country off the map without a single casualty. So that a nation gets to see in a slightly different way that sin brings destruction. They've watched it on their parents' generation over and over and over again. The ground-eating people, fiery serpents biting people. But now, even through a nation being wiped off the map to teach you over and over and over again, sin kills. Sin kills.
And the reality is that sin is a poison that spreads. I think my, my favorite illustration, thinking about sin, is like handing a jar of glitter to a three-year-old. As much as we might like to pretend that this is going to go well, the reality of the matter is what? One, is the jar of glitter going to be spilled? Yes, guaranteed, right? And of course, we know this. And two, where is it going to end up? Everywhere. Well, you say, well, don't worry, they only spilled it in the playroom. I guarantee you're going to find it in the grill outside. You'll have no idea how, but we'll have made it there. You'll go to take a shower. It'll be on your bar of soap. You won't know how that happened. In your bottle of shampoo. It'll go everywhere. You'll clean out the lint trap in your dryer for months. You'll never be rid of this stuff. Now, if you like glitter, that's a fun thing. If you hate glitter, well, then you understand a little more. You see, the reality is sin is the same, is that it is destructive in its very nature. It is a poison to the soul. It is a rot from within, but it doesn't stay contained. It spreads. It creeps and lurks. leaving destruction everywhere it goes. Now I know the human, the human temptation is to say, I, I know that's true for other people, but that's not really true for me because one, I'm better than they are. I mean, I don't say that out loud, but I know I am. And two, my sin's not as bad as theirs. I mean, I know that's the truth for them, right? I know, I know their sin will destroy them because their sin is bad. I mean, have you seen them? I know they're bad. But my sin won't do that because my sin is not that bad. Interestingly, that actually is the primary thing dealt with in chapter 32. Midian's dealt with. We're going to come back to chapter 31 again if I use my time well enough. In chapter 32, the nation prepares to cross over to go across the Jordan and get ready to enter into the promised land. And as they're approaching the Jordan, they realize, hey man, this part of the country is really nice. Right? We've just come through Edom. It's filled with all kinds of cliffs. It's terrible. We've gone around, skirted around the outside of that. We're coming up next to the Jordan. This is really, we get the feeling it's a land filled with milk and honey, almost like God promised. And you have a couple of tribes, two and a half, that sit down with Moses and say, hey, we'd like to actually just stay here. Can we just stay here? (laughs) We don't need to cross the Jordan. We don't need to go fight. We don't need to kill everybody else. We don't need to wipe any more countries off the face of the map. We're just comfortable here. It's a nice place. Moses obviously is less than keen on that, you know, to have 20% of his army suddenly disappear, roughly. To have two full tribes kind of back out, so to speak. And so they offer a deal. They say, well, hey, you know what? This is what we'll do. If you'll give us this land here, if this can be our inheritance, 
we'll send our soldiers to fight for the rest of the country for the rest of the war. It's not an issue of cowardice, it's an issue of contentment. We're not afraid to fight, we're not afraid to die, we just like this place. Moses is willing to uh, agree to this deal, and verse 20 and following is where you get kind of the turning point of the entire chapter. This is the central focus, the kind of nugget of the middle. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. So if you do this, you keep your terms of the deal, then absolutely. But... If you will not do so, behold, this is the key verse, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. You see, again, this is that kind of uh, immediate remedy for that first problem. We know that sin kills, but we we like to think of it so externally. It's a situation of your sin kills, but mine doesn't because mine's not that bad. Your sin is the problem. Mine's not because mine's not that bad. And the interesting thing is, is the Lord makes it so clear. Oh, friends, your sin will find you out. Now, there's a reason for this. If you're a child of God, it's because He loves you. It's not punitive or vindictive. It's not some petty God uh, dealing with His people in a petty fashion. It's if He loves you and takes care of you. Hebrews tells us this. He disciplines you, and part of that is bringing your sin to light. Sin thrives in darkness. Your sin will find you out. Now again, the reality here is that if we think of sin very much like that open cup of glitter given to the three-year-old, there's also just kind of an essential property of sin, is that it will always be found out because it's never actually contained. Right? That's, that's the thing is we tend to think of our sin as it's like manageable. Like, well, of course my sin, I'm not going to get found out my sin because I can keep it under control. I can, I can keep tabs on it. I can kind of keep it in a box. It's like, friends, you, your sin is a rabid pit bull. It doesn't matter what you do, it's going to get out because that's the nature of how a pit bull works. And if it got rabies, it's going to go bite. No amount of effort that you can do can keep the, the glitter in the cup, so to speak. Because it's the nature of sin to be contaminating, to be transmissive, to be expanding. It's going to grow. And eventually, when sin grows, it will show. Now, this is a reality that I think, I suspect, most Christians kind of turn a blind eye to or choose to not think about. So much of the evangelical movement and the time in which we live and even some confessional churches uh, have been impacted by an idea called therapeutic moralistic deism, 
which is a really fancy word for saying the idea that God exists to be my therapist. Right? This idea that God exists to make me feel better about myself and that the church exists to make me feel better about myself and that the pastor's job is to make me feel better about myself and just to make my life a happier place. You laugh at that, but it is, I would say, probably the, the dominant worldview of the evangelical model. A church that's built around the idea of I'm unhappy and I, I need the church to make me happy. I need God to make me happy. And the ironic thing is that as part of that, the, the, the doctrine that gets kind of shuffled away and tucked under the carpet and hidden where nobody can see it gets dumped in the junk drawer that everybody has somewhere in their house that's closed and you don't want the guests to actually go into while they're looking for the forks or whatever. The doctrine that gets dumped away in there is the doctrine of sin, specifically with how evil it is and how uh, kind of transmitting it is, a transmissive and contaminating and spreading. We live in a world in which the church is so easily kind of about making me kind of feel good about how things are. Instead of talking about the fact that sin will destroy you and you cannot hide it forever. That it will come to light either in this life or the life to come. It will come to light and it will destroy you. You see, it's the bad news. It's the giant backdrop for the gospel. It's the the giant reason why I need a Savior. You see, in a church where I don't have sin as the backdrop, if, if I have my happiness as the backdrop, all I need is a really good therapist. But in a world in which sin brings destruction, and my sin will find me out, I, I don't need a therapist. I need a Savior. I need a mediator. I need somebody who can go to God on my behalf and say, don't destroy this man. I know he deserves it, but don't kill him. I need someone that can get me mercy. Instead of the destruction that my sin deserves. Chapter 33, I think, kind of sets us up for that. There's a lot going on in this chapter. The the place names are extremely complicated. This is one of those chapters in the Bible that does give many commentators great fits. But effectively, what it is, is a list of Israel's history. Now, interestingly on this one, it's, it's not by the events that we know. It's by the geography that they've traveled. And we don't know a lot of these places because they're lost in history so far. But he's wandering through, taking them kind of through their history and the various places they've been and the various sites that they've seen, the various geographical locations that they have traveled through to remind them that it's ultimately not their story. (laughs) To remind them that it was ultimately about the Lord bringing a people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing a people to the wilderness to meet him and to know him, to covenant with him, 
to take them out into the wilderness where they would forget about their adulterous hearts and fall in love with their redeeming God, and even then after being under His discipline to be the recipients of His blessing. That this is their God, and they are His people. I do like how this is kind of the answer for the previous chapter's problem. This uh, chapter 32 presents this, your sin is an issue. It's, it's going to find you out. It's this creeping, pervasive, revealing, contaminating thing. What hope do I have? What hope do I have if, if this is how my sin is? What hope do I have? but God. I mean, that's effectively the content of chapter 33 as the Lord takes them through places and changes leadership and watches out for them and provides water for them and reminds them of their story. It's but God. God is the one who is at work. God is the one who has been faithful to them from the beginning. God is the one who brought them out of Egypt. God is the one who provided miracles along the way. God is the one who provided food. God is the one who provided water. God is the one who provided a relationship with them. God is the one who provided his law so they may know him. God is the one who's provided everything. Because their only hope all along has been the Lord himself. And it's amazing how easy it is for this to kind of corrode in our minds. We've been taught that God is faithful to us. I mean, I mention it in a sermon probably at least once a month. One of my favorite ideas in Scripture that the Lord is faithful and keeps His promises If you've ever met with me for pastoral counseling of any kind, it's always about God's faithful to His promises. But it's so easy for us to kind of slowly back away from that reality that God is faithful to His promises when I don't deserve them. It's so easy for us to kind of quietly shift gears in our mind to say, well, of course he's faithful to his promises. I haven't done anything bad this week. I mean, last week, sure, but not this week. Yeah, it's easy for God to be faithful to his promises. Have you seen me? We never say it that bluntly. It's easy for God to be faithful because of me. It's amazing how sneaky this is in getting into our minds and getting into our hearts. I mean, one example of this, we, we ask everybody that joins the church here, um, if you were to go to before the throne of God right now and the Lord was going to let you into heaven, what's your answer? And friends, if you use the first person singular pronoun at all, it's the wrong answer. If you use the letter I as a word, it's the wrong answer. 
You know why I should go to heaven? Because God. Not because of me. There's no deserving in my heart. There's no deserving in my hands. There's no deserving in my mind or in my mouth. There is nothing I deserve because points one and two are my life. Sin brings destruction and your sin will find you out in so many ways is my personal history. It's the explanation of my heart. But God is faithful. Well, that's the explanation of His heart. That God is the one who forgives sin. That's an explanation of His heart. That God has sent even His Son to redeem for Himself a people. That's an explanation of what God does. He is the one who redeems for Himself a people. And as a result of this, when we honestly, when we really and truly deal with sin, I mean, when we really deal with sin, when it comes to light and it's raw and exposed, it's where we suddenly begin to understand that we don't deserve the love of God and there's nothing but shame and loathing of self, the hatred of all that we are. We have to ask the question, what does God think? What does God think about His people? What does God feel about His people? What's God's position toward His people? And for that, we'd actually need to go back to chapter 31. There is an answer here. It's absolutely marvelous, and I love this. It's one of my favorites. Those weird things that when you don't pay attention to the numbers don't entirely make sense. Well, you accounting types in the room, this is your, uh, this is your sermon, folks. Verses 13 and following there, we've seen Moses gives them the command to kill all the men and to kill all the women who are married and to leave all of the unmarried women, the virgins and the children. And they do, do that, and they've uh, basically killed off an entire nation. And interestingly, right before they enter into the promised land, Verse 25, the Lord says to Moses, take count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast, you and Eleazar the priest and all the heads of the father's houses and the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. So the entire nation gets half of the plunder and the soldiers who risk their lives get half of the plunder and that's what happens. Now skip ahead to verse uh, 32. There's a tithe taken out of that as well. 32, now the plunder remaining of the spoil that the army took. So this is just the soldier's portion. 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cows, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 people in all, women who had not known a man by lying with them. It's funny because the commentators get to this and look at it and say, this can't actually be true because the, the amount of wealth that's being described here would rival Egypt itself. It can't be accurate because it's so much. I'm like, that's the point, guys. 
That's the whole point of it. That's the whole thing. Remember how when he took them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, remember what happened right before they left Egypt? The Lord turned the Egyptians' hearts against Israel, and they said, we want you to leave. We're going to give you all of our wealth if you just go. And so they do. Loaded and filthy rich. Did they deserve it? No. Did they use it well? No. Eventually becomes a lot of it a golden calf that gets ground up and they drink it and all sorts of mess. But it's interesting that right before they enter into the promised land, with the second generation, what does God do? He gives them the riches of an entire nation right before they go into battle to remind them He loves you. He doesn't hate you. He hates sin. He hated his son when he was on the cross bearing your sin. When he became the wrath of God. But he loves you. He's loved you before the foundation of the world. He loved you before you committed sin. He loved you while you committed sin. And he loved you after. Now, he doesn't love the sin. He does not love the sin. Oh, but he loves his children. Here you have a victory that's kind of a military marvel. An entire nation is wiped off the map with no casualties. No Israelite men die. A nation is wiped off the map to give an obscene amount of wealth to God's people before they cross into the promised land. This would become uh, the supplies that they would eat off of and live off of as an entire nation. This is what ultimately ends up replacing the manna. And interestingly, Moses, a man who had his own moral failing, a man who's the only one left that doesn't get to go into the promised land, in fact, the last one remaining under God's wrath, he gives them a massive military victory to go out on. What a kindness. He doesn't go out in ignominy. He doesn't go out in shame. He doesn't go out in anything other than a reminder of the Lord's blessing. And I think that's probably why chapter 34 is so important and why I spent the time reading that. Because, friends, it's really easy for us to think of God's blessing kind of in the ether. Actually, scratch that. It's hard for us, isn't it? Most of us are kind of tangible people. We we have this said all the time. We're visual learners. That doesn't really exist, but we say it anyways. We we learn best when we can see things or when we can touch things or feel things. And we we learn best when our, our senses are being stimulated. It's one of the reasons why your retention drops 30% when you're reading on a computer instead of reading paper in your hand. But 34 is interesting because what the Lord is doing is he's taking that blessing that could so easily kind of be perceived in the abstract and lost, and he's literally pointing to it on a map to say, this place to that place is proof of my love. And that place to the next place is proof of my love. And that place, until it hits 
The Mediterranean is proof of my love. And the Mediterranean Sea is proof of my love. And the Mediterranean over to this place, to that place, to this place, down. It's proof of my love. It's proof that God keeps His promises, that He loves His children. It's proof that He blesses beyond what we can understand. It's proof that He's keeping His promises made all the way back in Genesis to Abraham that this land would be the land that God gives him. It's taking God's blessings from the abstract and putting them into the concrete. Now, for us, we is a little different, I guess. Thankfully, we're not going out on conquest where we're going out and, you know, stabbing everybody. I'm really glad about that. Um, not the life I, I'd really be eager to live, uh, killing everybody with swords, my neighbors and such like that. Instead, actually, our mission is the same. It's just change the weapons. Now, no longer we use actual, you know, steel and swords and such like that. We use a different sword. Right? One that's far more powerful. One that's far more profitable. One that can change the entire world. And as a result of that, we, I think, have the same kind of task before us that uh, we're supposed to be those kinds of people that remember the geography of God. Now, here it's not looking at, oh, hey, God's you know, kingdom in this place stretches from Let's see, um, we're one of the most southern houses over to the Curitan house over to, and work around church social on the map and say, hey, look, this is proof of God's kingdom. No, I, I think there's actually a different way that he's designed the church to work where we see God's faithfulness tangibly. And it's in the people sitting next to you, actually. You want to see God's goodness at work? It's the people in this room and all the mess that they bring, and all the hurt and the heartache that's involved, and all of the difficulty of sheep being sheep, and trying to love one another and sometimes failing, sometimes being successful and rejoicing when we do. But we are your proof that God loves you, that you have other people to bear your burdens with you, to take care of you, to love you, and to watch over you. And you know what? You are the proof to me that God loves me. Brandon and I are ever having a bad day in ministry. We can just, all we have to do is stop and think. What are the proofs that God loves me? Let me pull out church social. I can go through the directory. What are the ways that God loves me? Let me count the ways. Family by family, person by person. God's loving care. Does it always feel good? No. Is it always happy? No. Remember where the sermon started. Sin is destructive. It leaves broken relationships everywhere. It's pervasive and contaminating. It has to be dealt with. It is always a mess, even when we don't think it is. But our God is bigger than that. Our God is greater 
than that. And in fact, even weirdly enough to say, all these people around you in some sense, according to Romans 8, are given for your good. Now, I would just briefly end with a couple of very quick applications. One, if we're going to be the kind of church that begins to see each other as God's gifts to me to help me understand His love, one, we need to be the kind of church that knows each other and works to know each other. I understand we have a unique circumstance. We've doubled since COVID started. Some have come in knowing a whole bunch of each other. None of that matters because everyone in this room is your gift to you to understand the love of God. But beyond that, in order for us to not be overwhelmed with the messiness of sin and the hurt of sin and sometimes even the betrayal of sin, our final answer can't be to look at each other because we're always going to let each other down at some point. Our final answer has to be, has to be, to look at Christ. That's ultimately really what has to be the thing that unites this church. Now, this church historically has done a brilliant job of loving one another. Not perfect, but a good job. But that love can't be the thing that unites us. It has to be love for Christ, that we would look at Him and be overwhelmed by His beauty, be comforted by His love, be cleansed by His forgiveness, be encouraged by His victory, that we would have the peace that passes all understanding, not because we gave up, not because we quit trying, because we know God is at work now and he never loses. Never has. The next time you're in hard circumstances, I can comfortably say it will not be the first time God loses. Won't be. Your circumstances aren't that bad. He's bigger than that. May it be that we as the Christridge Presbyterian Church would re-commit energize, focus our efforts to see the beauty of Jesus even today. For Christ's sake, amen. Lord, would you please even now give us the eyes to see Jesus It's so easy for us to see ourselves. That's really not helpful. Give us the eyes of faith faith that we might see Christ and your faithfulness to us for Christ's sake. Amen.